The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Pinball Show. Pinball is a game of skill. For some, it's a passion and a lifestyle. It's time for The Pinball Show. It's pinball with personality. Welcome to The Pinball Show Midweek Edition. This is episode four. My name is Dennis Creasel. You might know me as one of the co-hosts over with TPN's Monday edition of The Pinball Show. And joining me is the co-host and founder of TPN's Silverball Chronicles, Mr. David Dennis. Hello, David. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for having me on today. Well, uh, you know, we don't normally do the midweek show. I don't think you've ever done it, and I don't think I've ever done it, and I'm pretty sure I would remember if I had. And the reason is I wanted to do something that was very focused on COVID-19 and the related economic downturn that we are now seeing worldwide and what that impact means for the hobby. And there wasn't another midweek show going on. So I'm like, why don't you give me that spot? And Zach and Ken were like, why don't you take it? Yeah, well, some people say Zach is the hardest working man in pinball, but he'll take a vacation or a break whenever he can. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, hardest working man waiting for machines to show up so he can sell them. Uh, that's the whole thing. It's an unprecedented time. I know people have said that about a million times. Uh, it's like I need a, instead of having a swear jar, I'll have a cliche jar. And that's part of the reason why I contacted you about the idea of doing this is because while we both are pinball hobbyists, we can approach this topic from our professional backgrounds. So you actually have a background as a financial advisor. Yeah, that's right. So um, I've been in the financial services industry for 12 years, and and I'm in my uh, mid-30s, so that's actually a fairly long tenure for somebody my age. In 2008-2009, I did my financial licenses in uh, Toronto, which is, and some would say, the New York City of Canada, the the financial (laughs) hub. (laughs) That's the New York City. We need to do that here. The New York City of Kansas, New York City of Arkansas. I'm just imagining all the New York cities. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of them, and uh, granted, it's uh, it's different, but it is the most populated city. Um, it is the the financial hub of the country. It's the regulatory hub of the country as well. So I spent um, about ten years in Toronto working in financial services there, and I worked in Canada at what we call a, a mutual fund dealership. So uh, mutual funds are collection of stocks and bonds and mixtures, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I worked at a dealership, which helps sort of facilitate the the retail sales of those. Uh, I guess an example down there would be sort of like a Merrill Lynch, I guess, might be an example of, uh, of a type of mutual fund dealer or a banking structure that I worked in. When, uh, when I finished there in uh, 2016, I worked uh, as a regional vice president for sales and distribution. And I oversaw about 180 financial advisors and managed about 4 billion in assets. And as you can imagine, that level of scale requires a lot of travel, a lot of time away from family. And originally I'm from the East coast of Canada and it's a much laid back sort of lifestyle, very family oriented. And I wasn't getting enough family time. I wasn't seeing my family back on the East coast enough. And at that time, the urban lifestyle of living in a quote-unquote big city, it just didn't work for me. So that's when I returned back to the East Coast. I see. So you, you've got you've gone home to your roots. Yeah, that's right. Now, now I work, instead of working on the wholesale level, working with financial advisors, I am a financial advisor working retail with her. I really like working with, with people instead of advisors. And it's just sort of my, um, like spending time with regular people. Okay. 
Well, that makes sense. And I, I'm sure that we need to insert all of relevant caveats regarding that you are not actually on this podcast to give financial advice. To yeah, yes, that's right. So I'm not giving any financial advice today. Uh, these are all just my own opinions. Some of the information that I've got from my portfolio managers, the people that I work with, uh, you know, these aren't stock tips or mutual fund suggestions. So, so please take that as, as you will. And in terms of the world of COVID-19, I come, I come at this discussion from, I won't say the opposite side, but the other side of the discussion point. And that is I worked, I've been for a little over a year now, in fact, involved with working with local health departments within the state of Kansas. Uh, I'm an administrator by training. However, when I got out of graduate school, my very first job was serving as a public and environmental health fellow. I did research specific to public and environmental health. They're often one in the same, but we sometimes distinguish them a little bit because they get split across different agencies in most governments. So while I did not have an educational background in public health, that is what I did for five years. And then I moved on to more broad-based policy analysis, and I've spent 16 years working for a quasi-public entity before I switched fully into the nonprofit side to start working more directly with local health. So as the title of local health department may suggest, and that I work with them, all I do anymore is COVID. Every single day, is that's my life now. I have two meetings at least every day on the topic of COVID, and it's sort of sad because now here I am in my quote-unquote downtime, and I'm talking about it some more. But it has a clear impact on the hobby. We've been seeing that from articles to hearing other podcasts, but I really wanted to do a deep dive. I think that it's warranted. And then if people aren't interested or they feel like they've heard too much about COVID-19 and the coronavirus, then just skip it. Just don't listen to it. But we're going to go through here with our two areas of expertise, and we're going to start examining various facets of this hobby and discuss what we think the impact of coronavirus is going to be. And I'd like to go ahead and start with the manufacturer examination first, because I think that's the one that's going to come up to most hobbyists uh, when they visualize impact. So as I think most people already know at this point, we've had a number of manufacturers already confirm either delays in production or reveals and or shutdowns completely. Now, that's not surprising because a number of these companies are based in the Chicago area at this point. So Stern Pinball, they've moved to reduced operations. They also have a delay. They delayed the reveal of the heavy metal pinball machine that they had previously announced already. Yeah, and we still haven't seen a, a, their next announcement, which really comes the week after TPF in most cases. Yeah, at least uh, that's what everyone stingingly remembers from uh, last year when uh, Munsters were all over the floor at TPF. And then a couple of days later, it's like, surprise, there's Black Knight Sword of Rage. Um but a good point. I don't know if that's always that consistent or not. I think their cornerstones are probably primarily driven by how busy their line is. And I you know, didn't, didn't blame them for the fact that they wanted to have Texas as a big push to move Munster's units. But we're kind of getting into the, into the past, and here we are to talk about the present. So they're shut down at this point in terms of production. They've gone to what they can call reduced operations. You know, Their designers and such are working from home, and that's the case with a lot of these companies. Uh, we know that American Pinball has announced that they had to halt production as well. Again, they're under the same order. Chicago Gaming Company has announced they've halted production. They're under the same order. 
Jersey Jack Pinball was in the process of moving to Chicago, thus they were moving under the same order as everyone else, so they're subject to that as well. Timing. Brutal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Now, Spooky Pinball is over in neighboring Wisconsin. They have a stay-at-home order at this point as well, so they have shut down production. We know that Texas... Uh, Deep Root Pinball was planning to do a reveal in conjunction with the Texas Pinball Festival. Originally, they were going to not be at Texas, but they were still going to do the reveal. And then that became untenable. So their official launch has been postponed again uh, now due to the due to the disease. And then Multimorphic, which is a Texas-based company, they got a number of their newly released uh, module heist uh, play fields ready for shipping. And they are under a stay-at-home order, but they have noted that if the demand is high enough, they do have the capabilities to actually produce play fields in the home setting. But that would only be necessary if things became very extended. I don't know about any of the other manufacturers, but I think these are seen as the main ones of concern. And these are the ones that we've seen on press releases that have sent out. So I think this is a good starting point, really. Well, I think by just these names that we've mentioned, bearing in mind that Deep Root Pinball hasn't sold anything yet, we're still talking about probably over 97% of all new in-box dollar sales represented by these companies. 95% of that probably comes from one manufacturer. Yeah, well, well, but yeah. So I said some others will probably tell you, and maybe that's lower to more like 80%, but what do we know? They they keep it secret. Keep it safe. Yes. Corporate secrets. Yes. Well, if all if they were publicly traded, we'd know far more. But they are not. I think corporate secrets are really going to kind of come in. It could. So there are a variety of facets to this examination of the manufacturers within this overall deep dive that I wanted to explore with you. I guess the main one that I would turn to someone like you with your vast background in financial management what do you think in terms of like liquidity of cash, the bailouts that are being that have been approved and are discussed in some cases on a state by state basis? Survival. That's the number one question that everyone has probably got on their mind is are these manufacturers going to be able to weather the storm of not producing pens? What say you, David? What say you? Oh, a super good question. Now all my I, questions are good, David. I think you could probably speak to this better than I, but right now we are in a health crisis and we're trying to manage the economy around that health crisis. It's not until the health crisis plays out, until it moves forward, and there's some sort of downslope on this curve that we all hear about, things start to improve, that then we'll be able to actually see and take stock. I think the way a lot of governments are facing it now is that they are doing as much as they can for the economy in the short term. Because it's better to wake up with a headache than not wake up at all. And these companies, I think, will follow that same methodology. Now, people talk about, you know, a financial crisis. Well, this isn't 2008. This is very, very, very different. This is a health crisis which has led to a recession and an economic downturn. And it's not a normal one, but it is certainly much more normal than the financial crisis of 2008. It took 12 months or so for the banking sector and governments to kind of figure out how to get the mud out of the financial wheels of the, of the North American economy predominantly and then the European economy. And that's with something they call quantitative easing. That's super nerdy. You can Google that if you want to. But what that is, is it's being able to create liquidity and cash within the economy. The biggest issue now 
is somebody like a Stern or a JJP, maybe, they need to be able to pay their employees, they need to be able to pay their rent, but they're not selling anything to do that. So there's two things that they can really do. One is use any cash that they may have on hand. So if they had some sort of investments or some sort of just literally cash on hand in a bank, or their number two, lines of credit and credit. And that's really what quantitative easing speaks to. It's trying to give the banks enough cash to then loan out that cash. Because if they get scared and start hoarding it, they won't be able to lend it to companies that need it to then pay their employees, pay their rents, et cetera, et cetera. And that's sort of where we sit today. Okay. So given the U.S. federal response, because all these companies that we've discussed in terms of the press releases that have gone out, the ones we named just a little bit ago, they're all U.S.-based companies. Do you feel that the federal response, now that they've signed their two-plus trillion dollar bailout package, that that is enough to give confidence to the banks to do the necessary lending? I think on the short term that that has mitigated a lot of the immediate danger. I think the Federal Reserve is looking down the, down the road. They're not looking at necessarily the next week or two. They're, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we prevent this downturn from the medical crisis spiraling into a financial crisis, right? So as those dominoes start to fall, how do we prevent them or slow them down? The general consensus that I see right now amongst the portfolio managers that I speak to is that we are just trying to kick that can down the road so we can see what it looks like on the other side. And then on the other side, we'll be able to then sort of recover. I mean, I guess the an easier way to kind of break that down is what if the entire world takes a one-month vacation and then we all just come back to work in a month? Well, then we should see everything spin back up and everybody starts spending again. Problem is that that's not possible for everybody to take a month, right? Right. Because you need to pay your your rents, you need to pay your employees, you need to pay in the United States, you got to pay medical premiums, that kind of thing. And you can't just sort of all take a break. So what you need to do is is help banks and help businesses borrow money in some cases, or the way it's working here in Canada is we're increasing a lot of the benefits or we're covering uh, wages for employees from a government standpoint to sort of get us through this hump. And then things should sort of work in its own way. I think the American uh, model is one follow in some cases, but it has been, I would say, maybe a bit slow and difficultly defined, but I think it's the right thing for the moment. They may need more stimulus. You may have to do it again because based on the numbers, and you're more of an expert at that, this this is not going particularly well in the U.S. Well, and I think it's interesting where you said that you felt that the U.S. was slow. So would you dive into that a, a little bit more? Because I think from a U.S. perspective, people will look and go, well, it was only like one week of discussion and debate between the U.S. Senate revealing the Republican-based uh, constructed uh, bailout plan to it actually being approved on the House side and sent over to the president for signature. So from a response standpoint, it was one of the fastest maneuvers that we saw from our federal government in the last 20 years. Yeah, it certainly was impressive with the speed that they were able to get it through a very fractured Congress and Senate. And if we take a look at your political system, it hasn't really been the hottest in the last you know, couple of terms uh, for presidents, but they were able to at least come together at some point. The 
the delay, I would say, is recognizing what the issue was and deploying some sort of solution. So, uh, as I mentioned in 2008, it took 12 months before the, the Federal Reserve or the sort of the nonpartisan monetary people for them to actually institute what they did to help sort of grease the wheels, if you will, of the financial system. Well, they did that almost immediately when the markets started to move, the financial stock markets. And I think the leadership in the United States took a little bit of time trying to determine how how large an impact this health crisis will have. And as the realization and the fog started to clear a little bit, that's when a sense of urgency started. And the turnaround was rather quick once that started. I think it was the the realization of what was going on. That delay, I think, is the difficult part. So now we're into the beginning of, a- of April. Rents are coming due, and we're having this issue here in Canada is, are, are businesses able to defer rent? Are they able to defer some payments? So my life insurance, for example, is my life insurance company going to give me 15 extra days because I have to get out of my unemployment package, et cetera, et cetera. And most of them are doing those things, but those those all have consequences. Yes. And and I do agree with with your assessment on that. In terms of how the numbers work, and a lot of this, again, getting back to our question that we're looking at, which is really, can the manufacturers survive a shutdown? And I agree, a short term, I don't think it's probably a big deal for any of them, uh, especially given the bailout funds. Extended shutdown, it's a lot more nebulous. Uh, and part of that has to do with uh, the US system and the nature of our social safety nets, which aren't as robust as in other uh, Western democracies, for example. So part of that challenge, like for example, that you mentioned uh, employees, and if you had to let them go, are you going to bring them back? Were they able to continue to pay for health insurance? A lot of employees get their health insurance from their employer at this point in the US. So based off of that, it becomes really complicated when things like unemployment benefits come into play. And it's like, well, but now there's a new expense. I have to go out and, you know, I have to do what, what's called COBRA and continue my, pe- my premiums out of pocket. And those used to be paid for at least in part by my employer. So there are these added expenses that are in, in play for the individual. And as you noted, there are these continuing expenses that an individual would face that a business will also face, like renting the facility. Uh, You got to pay the mortgage. There have been maneuvers at the state levels to defer some of that. But again, that all answers that question about why we are in agreement that short term is probably not a big deal. But longer term, my question is, especially let's say that a a big part of these bailout packages that I've seen, and we'll get into this a little bit uh, on the more operator side as well, but like the small business uh, administration has low interest, no interest loans. My state has offered uh, essentially emergency 0% loan funding for small businesses as well, but you still have to pay it back. It's, it's 0%, but that's just more, it's more debt that has to be, it has to be serviced at some stage. So I think the, on the long tail on this, that makes me wonder I have been of the opinion there there are a few of these manufacturers that are not in a particularly, even though pinball has been doing well, weren't in the best position financially in the first place. That I think they already had debt. Oh, absolutely. And so my my question, my intellectual question is the if they have a long tail where even if it's low to no interest on additional debt, if some of them might accelerate a decision to get out of production of pinball. 
if they don't have a smash hit, if the sales don't come rolling in right away, just because it's like at some stage, don't you want to throw in the towel of the debts too much? Yeah, I would agree with that. When you look at which manufacturers are are in it as a business and which manufacturers are in it as part of their business, as well as which manufacturers just do it because it's fun. There's a big difference there. And, you know, in most cases, we don't really know, not in any detail, the financial picture of, of things going on. We know, yeah. for example, that Deep Root hasn't sold anything. So we know that their, their income on the pinball side has been non-existent. We know Spooky pre-sold all of the Rick and Morty. So we know what their starting cash amount that they have from all those $1,000 non-refundable deposits is. So one might assume Spooky definitely has a nest egg that they can live on for a while. We can't make an assumption on Deep Root because we don't know what the internal investments were. Uh, Stern, obviously, is a very large-scale organization. That might mean that they have the sort of credit available to be able to sustain. Uh, they've weathered other downturns. Companies like the American Pinball and Jersey Jack Pinball, they've never really been around for any sort of recession before. So this is the first time they're going to be experiencing something like that. Yeah, and unfortunately, this isn't your sort of quote unquote standard recession, right? And- right. No, <sighs> I think that, and that you pointed that out earlier, and I think it's a good point to make because this is not. It's not like when the dot-com bubble burst. This isn't like the banking and housing crisis of 2008. This is a government-mandated shutdown. So I agree that a lot of these jobs will probably come back very, very quickly once the economy reopens with that major caveat that not it's not going to work for everyone because there are going to be some people that are in a serious problem. They're going to have a serious problem. They Not all consumers are going to be able to spend at the level they were spending at because they've been unemployed and living on reduced income. Yeah. And the, the really the government governments, their focus at the moment is let's get through this period because we if we can get to a, a light switch flicking moment where everybody's back to work, and everybody's doing it, how do we mitigate the damage in the month or two that we are stuck in our homes? You know, it's not that we don't want to spend money, which is usually what happens in a recession, right? It's usually when you start at the top of your uh, emotional cycle of, of the economy, and that's when you're at the top and things are looking great and you're spending lots of money. Let's think of that as, let, let's think of that as uh, January this year. Then you start on that curve on the way down. And it's all about emotion and confidence. If you don't have confidence in the economy, and I'm not talking about the stock market, I'm talking about the economy. So employment, uh, housing starts, people buying cars, uh, consumer spending, interest rates, all of that stuff. If you don't have confidence, you're going to stop spending. And that's what happens in a recession is people are worried about their job or their friend's job. So they're like, you know what? I'm not going to buy that new pinball machine that I was expecting to buy. Maybe I'll buy a used one or maybe I won't buy one at all. And then all of a sudden now there's nobody building that pinball machine because they have to reduce the amount that they're building because they're not selling as many. And then that person goes on unemployment and they're not doing those things. And it sort of scales all the way down until you get to that trough or the bottom of of that emotional cycle and people start thinking, you know what, it, you know, things are getting a little better, or I just got a new job, or you know, things are starting to turn around, and confidence is coming up, and then you start back on the climbing up that mountain again, and and that cycle repeats nonstop over and over and over, and it has and will continue to do that. Yes, and I think this is where the 
the forecasting regarding how the disease, how, and I guess for those that you often will hear interchangeably, COVID-19 and coronavirus, COVID-19 is the disease. Coronavirus is the virus that causes the disease. So that, there's a subtle distinction, but that's the distinction. So the issue of there's not really a way until businesses are allowed to start working again because of an alleviation of the social distancing requirements that any of that healing process can start. And the question there will be regarding how what the that's up to the virus, essentially. Well, technically, it's up to the government interpreting when they're willing to have uh, allow more risk to be put in. This has to do without flattening the curve. When are we going to let people start congregating again? I mean, it depends on who you ask. But the answer that I believe on that is the whole goal at this stage for most of the countries that have cases is we're just trying not to overwhelm the hospital system. Absolutely. It's not about preventing people from getting COVID-19. We passed that point months ago. If you wanted to stop it from getting in, you needed to have a much more proactive national response. We didn't have anything remotely like that. That ship has sailed. It's, st- it's still lagging, some would say. Yes. It, it, there's no. I, I'm not saying everyone will get it. I'm just simply saying that containment, like you think back to the movies like Outbreak and stuff where you're like, we're, you got to stop the disease and you got to isolate all the sick people. You quarantine the suspected people. You wait for the disease incubation period. And then you know you're good. You're in the clear. You caught them all. Yeah, that's where this 15-day number keeps popping up, right, is incubation period. That's why right, for some right. reason it's, it's in yeah. increments of 15. Yeah, the disease essentially will go for somewhere on the order of two weeks, possibly at the most, before you show symptoms. The issue with COVID-19 that's made it so frustrating from a public health perspective is a number of people, especially younger people, don't show symptoms when they have it and they are shedding the virus, which means they're spreading it without having any knowledge that they don't eat, that they're sick. They don't feel bad. Like they don't feel bad at all. Totally asymptomatic. That's part of what caused the problem with how it spread in the first place. And then the other issue is because of how it spreads, it's fairly virulent, which means it's pretty easy to catch, which is why it's requiring these things like being six feet apart for, you don't want to be within six feet of anyone for more than 10 minutes. And that's where all that recommendation, and those recommendations got tweaked a bit. That used to be 15 minutes originally, I remember in the guidance, and then it got got cut down as we learned more about the virus. And there's still a lot about the virus we don't understand. So- Getting all the way back to our manufacturer examination, the question that people have on their minds is, well, when will we be allowed, when will these pinball manufacturers be allowed to go back to work? Short short answer is, I have no idea. Longer answer is, I have a bit of an idea. In my state, as of today, I was informed that the modeling for Kansas indicates that we expect peak at April 24th, and that may revise. And then you're back down the other side of the hill. And then you'll still be going to have, you're going to have increased cases still, but the number, it's not going to be growing. It'd be like, here, you had a thousand cases today on April 24th and on April 25th, you had 990. Yeah. You still got new cases, but, but you can't congregate the day after the peak. You'll sabotage everything. So most of our orders were going to the local orders that were most aggressive were set to expire like April 26th, April 28th. I don't think it's practical. I think we're going into May for sure. And the state orders that we currently have, Kansas had Kansas's governor passed a state order uh, last weekend that overruled all the local orders to provide a standard uniform 
uh, set of stay at home. And that's set to expire, I believe, on the 19th. And that's like, well, that's before even the model thinks we're going to be in the worst case. So that sort of – and it's different in different spots of the country. Obviously, the peak period for New York, at least New York City, should be before then because they have been leading on a lot of this. And they're, they've lost control a lot sooner than Kansas did. So with all that, it's going to be a question of when is the peak? And when are we well enough past the peak that people will say, all right, it's okay, we can either ease restrictions or completely lift them, knowing that that means more of the disease will spread, but we think our hospitals can handle it. Yeah, yeah. Now, when's the latest? I mean, when you ask public health people, they tend to err a lot more on the side of we want to defeat the disease. So I've had those with epidemiological experience tell me that they think if you wanted to do it right, you'd keep the economy turned off until the fall. Wow. August. And then say, okay, we're definitely going to be okay at this stage. I don't know anyone who is uh, professionally in public health who has been advocating that we would actually try and do anything as long as it takes to get the vaccine. I think some people think that the strategy is, oh, well, we need to wait until we get the, no, maybe if we caught it early, but that's not the strategy. It's not to just play things out until we get the vaccine. It's it's just to be able to handle the surge capacity on the hospitals. Yeah, so, absolutely. So I think the final thing to bring up regarding the manufacturers is perhaps the more fun speculative one because it doesn't necessarily play to either of our strengths, but and you've sort of touched on it already, but this year's release schedules from these manufacturers. And I just mean the release schedules that they internally have had in mind. What do you think happens to them? Because I don't see any way that we see every single game that they thought they were going to show us in 2020. No, certainly not. It's um, It has to be a reduced schedule. It has to be an amended schedule. And it, I don't think at this time it's a, it's a supply and demand issue where it usually is, where you know, somebody's demanding the machines and there's, they need to fill that supply. When that supply dries up, they got to make sure they get out a new title, something new and exciting. And hopefully that demand curve goes back up again. It, there is no demand and there is no supply. So even if there was demand, there's no supply. And if there's supply, there is no demand. It's very unusual. And I, I do think it may be possible, depending on whether or not a person is still able to work. So, for example, I I work from home. Uh, I've always worked from home quite a bit when I took this position. I, su- I suppose I would be classified as essential anyway, but, but aside from that, I would be able to do what I do from the safety and comfort of Zoom. So, given that, I could still have demand for a pinball machine, for example. If I wanted a Stranger Things, I could call Zach Minnie up and say, I want a Stranger Things. And then Zach would have to tell me, well, they're not making any more right now. So you have to wait. So given that, on top of that, I do believe there will be reduced demand because economic circumstances have changed for people. I also would think that once the lines are able to move again, there will be at least a volume of demand that will either reestablish itself or was pent up and just sort of waiting, pending, like those waiting for Rick and Morty's. And those games need to be built first. So I've always, my understanding from Josh Sharp, whose brother Zach works for Stern Pinball uh, and has a lot of manufacturing experience himself from over with Raw Thrills has been, it's about keeping the line busy. So if there ends up being a desire for more Stranger Things games that got cut off because of COVID-19, satisfying that is more important to Stern than revealing the next cornerstone. Absolutely. And uh, when it when it comes down to how do you manage that line, 
I mean, I'm not a manufacturing expert. That's probably why somebody like a Stern is still around because they're able to sort of pare back what they have to uh, lower the bomb on the machines. Maybe the biggest thing I think is testing the ice once the health crisis has passed. And by testing the ice, I mean, you know, what should they be putting on the line? Should they be putting on something with a bunch of toys? It's really complex and it has a high cost. Or should they sort of dial that back into that Iron Man, uh, Tron style, not too much going on to see if the demand comes back to where they expect and then follow that up with a secondary title, which is then, you know, one of those more robust titles. But wouldn't that test only work if in exchange for doing a stripped down game that they would actually reduce the price? Yeah, I, I would hope so. But uh you know, they probably ha- have their certain margins that they have to be. They- they've already purchased the parts, I'm sure, for a lot of the machines that are in the uh, in the queue already. My complete and total assumption, I'm sure everybody at a at a Stern or JJP is laughing because I feel like I'm some sort of expert here. But I think when you you're you're going to want to see right out of the gate if that demand comes back, you're not going to want to assume that this two month period that we've had off or, you know, you've mentioned maybe even up to four months, is just, it's like a light switch. Well, you you, know, you might want to wade into that a little easier. It's too much of a crystal ball thing for me to have a really good sense on. In the case of someone like Stern with their Pro Premium and LE, and there's a pretty big price spread between them, they might be able internally with the numbers that they know with what they sell, get a read on all that. But other than that, it's, it's so speculative because I just don't know if how many people buy pinball machines. Well, Let me, I'm going to put a pin on that one because we're going to get into the home collectors in a moment, but let's go ahead and transition away from the manufacturers to our second deep dive element, which is actually going to be on the operators. So the examination of the operations themselves. So I wanted to start with the impact of the stay at home orders regarding this. And I think this is, I think this has been felt much more substantively than, than the manufacturers even. Because if the manufacturers had games, they were still able to ship out what they already got built before the orders kicked into place. They tend to maybe be a little bit larger in terms of number of employees. When it comes to operators, we know that most of the venues, pretty much anyone who runs a venue in a state with a stay-at-home order, the games at the very least cannot be played, even if the business is still able to sell food. Yeah, I think that is the real sad part of this is that that the machines are there and it's very tactile, right? Like it's not virtual or digital or just pick up your food and go. It's like, it's something you literally have to touch and yell and, and, and it's right there. And so I was speaking, I unfortunately I don't even remember who it was, who, who had contacted me, but I was speaking with someone who had mentioned that I guess they own, I think it was a restaurant. And so they've been able to do the takeout and delivery option and they have been, getting orders. People have been acquiring food from them. However, their numbers have fallen to the degree that they were only generating business on the order of, oh, it's a convenience store. That's what it was. Uh, I believe they indicated it was about 15 to 20% their normal volume. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost a cost benefit analysis if it's even worth it to stay open at that point. Right. And, and this wasn't, wasn't to my knowledge, an operator. It has nothing to do with games. Uh, in our area, a couple of restaurants the operator is separate from the facility owner. Those restaurants are still doing food delivery. The games were turned off even before the stay-at-home order went into effect for safety reasons. So no income to that person. Uh, one of our, our most popular barcade in the Kansas City area for pinball 
as it just was a bar and not a restaurant, it can't do anything. So it's been shut down for weeks now. Financially, it's not generating any sort of income. I've mentioned like SBA loans before. Our state has offered some loan programs. I Those aren't always accessible though. The dollar amounts weren't enough for everyone to get anything. So it's I, what I'm really wondering, given that is, let's maybe delve a little more specifically into barcades. I can see an avenue with restaurants arguing the essential service, essential function roles, which they, at least in my state, are successfully arguing to continue to be able to provide pickup food options. Barcades can't do that. So I'm curious, what do you think on a really small business like this, which in a lot of instances, probably doesn't have a lot of cash built up. It's not a big manufacturer. It's not used to having to deal with large-scale purchasing, so they haven't needed to rely on having a lot of cash. What do you think? Do you think we're going to lose a bunch of them? Well, we we have a, in, in my province and many provinces across the country a state of emergencies that have been declared, and, and they have basically said you cannot open, you can maybe do some takeout, but then, again, cost-benefit analysis to stay open. Bars and restaurants on a on a good day have ultra tight margins. They are not making very very much at all on on food and their business in general. Right, most of them are doing it as a, a bit of a labor for of love. I've had a friend who started a couple of restaurants and and they've gone okay, but it's the difference between dropping a steak on the floor and throwing it out is a big deal, right? Like those margins are so tight, but. If you're, if you were a business person first and a restaurateur second, I think you will continue to be healthy in this and will continue to be healthy afterwards when it comes to your business. And the reason I say that is if you're doing it as a, as a passion or a hobby as a barcade, you, you know, you're not watching those books and those numbers quite as close as a business person would. Somebody who's watching what's coming in and out, somebody who's making sure that they have some sort of cash reserves. And you're going to have to find ways to leverage government aid packages that are designed to sort of prevent that financial contagion of spreading through. So if you are struggling and having issues, you need to know how to access those government benefits uh, when it comes to paying your rent, keeping your employees on and paying them, for instance. And, and you have to stick in a holding pattern for kind of as long as you can. And you have to think as a business person and not as a, a passionate person when it comes to pinball. Like the example here in Canada, and I, and I haven't looked, I apologize as to how it works in the U.S., but currently the federal government here in Canada if your business revenues have dropped by 30%, so let's say, for example, you own a barcade and you are closed and you don't sell food, you have basically lost 100%, if not 100% of your business. The government of Canada will kick in 75% of those wages for each employee that you keep on, up to $847 a month. Yeah, that's not quite the American model. Yeah, so that's... Now, that's going to cost the Canadian government a fortune, and for a country our size, that is a lot. But again, it's better to wake up with a headache than it is to not wake up at all. So the model that we're using here in Canada would be to help a restaurant. And that doesn't matter if you've got 10 employees or 50 employees, right? If you're a national chain or a local, or a, a local pub, that 
you need to know in the United States, if you are a, a barcade owner, you need to get in touch with your chamber of commerce, uh, you know, somebody in your area to say, what are the programs that I can leverage to keep my business open? If you don't know at all what your state is doing to help small businesses, again, you're not thinking like a business person. A business person wants to know right away, how can I get through this? As opposed to, oh my God, there's nobody in my restaurant to play the taxi that I just bought. Uh, that does make sense. I, uh, I, it would be fascinating to me once this is all said and done to see if there is someone that could do a count, an analysis of barcades in, say, the barcades with pinball machines in the United States, Australia, and Canada before and after COVID and see which one, which countries successfully kept theirs in place. I think on the US side, we will see not half plus of them going away, but I do think a number of them will go away. I've already seen via social media, some have indicated, and I think they were more, you know, hobbyist driven, passion project sort of stuff. And it's been a, it's just not worth it. We don't want to run, we don't want to go into debt. So we'd rather close now than face a whole lot of financial uncertainty. Yeah. And it, it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, on the flip side, a lot of operators specifically that do provide games at this stage are hobby operators. They don't predominantly rely on the operation of games for their main income. So they may be able to reestablish their routes once all of this blows over. The thing that I wonder, though, is especially if a number of bars, for example, which is a popular venue to cite pinball machines at, if a number of those go away, are they going to be replaced quickly by new businesses? And if they are, are they going to want pinball? Which begs the question, will route operators find new places to locate games, assuming the existing small businesses they've been using fold? Yeah, one thing that I think the world recognizes about Americans in general are that that you guys are capitalists through and through. You are innovative. You have this um, stick-to-itiveness. Uh, when you're down, you pick yourselves up and you fight. And I think you can see that when people like operators and barcades have tried to come up with innovative ways to leverage what they have. And one of those is, is renting pinball machines, right? From a venue. Sure. Some of my area operators are doing such things. Right. So that's, that's an innovative solution to, I got this thing in, you know, in my bar and I'm just selling some pizza at the moment and that's all I can really do. But I can throw that into somebody's house for 200 a month or 500 a month or whatever the cost would be. And if, if that person is able to have the cash flow to be able to do that, good on them. The, the leasing or renting out machines is, is a good thing. The other thing is, um, and I think a few people have maybe mentioned this, uh, is the purchasing of gift cards. So if you uh, have local bars that have gift cards that you can go to or restaurants, what you're doing there, actually buying that gift card, is an interest-free loan to that small business. So if you're getting a $100 gift card that you're probably going to spend on beers with friends when you get through this, you're buying it now, you're at least giving them some support now and an interest-free loan until you use it. Or if, like most people, you just forget the thing, somewhere or you lose it in your car between your seats into that black hole, well, you know, then they've got $100 and haven't had to do anything for it. So innovation in trying to keep yourself afloat, I think, is really what is 
the biggest deal at the moment for arcades particularly. Do you think that once we're past the uh, social distancing for COVID-19, that there will be a lot of reluctance by the public at large to play public arcade games? I, I, you know, I would say there's probably some reluctance. I think when we're on the bottom end of that curve, things are more or less back to normal. I think the whole hand-washing, you know, Purell by the pinball machines will be much more common. I think we'll think of it a lot more. I don't think people will actively stay away from the tactile game of pinball. I, I think we'd get back into that. And I'm a bit of a germaphobe myself, and if that's coming from me, you know. No, actually, I agree with you, actually. I don't I don't think there will be a long... I don't think there'll be a long tail on people being afraid to touch stuff. I think they're going to get past that really quickly, but there, we can hope that there's a new focus on sanitation. Yeah, forward. certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, now, what uh, gets me with- Oh, you, you pinballers, just saying. What, what what gets me with the route operators is is the black market among operators. You know, they will be in rough shape. Uh, if they are a cash business, so for example, if they are an owner-operator who just has a deal with Buddy who owns a bar, and I've put my five machines in there, and that's all under the table- you know, that's going to cause a lot of issues for those small, small businesses because they're under the table. They don't have access to government credit, the, the government leverage to be able to get them through or pay those. The most things, if you think about it, is that if you are a small route operator and you've purchased, you know, let's say some modern sterns over the last, you know, two years, and you've got four to six machines, they're all purchased on the line of credit that's on your home, and now they're sitting in somebody else's bar, you can't even go get them, you're not allowed to leave your home, and this is all a cash business anyway, you're not going to be able to go to your bank and ask for a deferral, you're not going to be able to go to the government at the state or federal or provincial level and to find some way to defer those payments or some interest relief because you've been doing it under the table. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep, that's why you should always do things legit. I don't just say it to be mean. That's I right. Say it, I say it to help. I'm a helper, yes. David. I'm a always. helper. Always in a three-piece legit suit. Like they no, I don't wear vests. Mm. Never trust fancy. a man in a three-piece that, suit. That, that's something from the New York of Canada that those of us in the Midwest would know. Even I, with my judgment of Zach Minnie and his ketchup on hot dog crap, have limits to my sophistication. I, I'm not going to weigh in on, on hot dogs. Yeah, they make, get, you want, they make me uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. Get, get yourself a hot dog. It's mm. my one funhouse quote. That's the only one you get. Speaking of getting, uh, getting funhouse, let's talk about home collectors. Let's go and deep dive that. So we've we've flirted with this topic uh, with the, with our other two categories that we've covered. But so you're a financial guru, market forces. We you talked a little bit about their an interpretation of there being probably no demand right now because of the changes in the workforce based off of these government mandates. But once we're back, once the orders of social distancing are lifted, what do you think the impact is on buying the new on buying new pens when they're available? It sounded to me earlier that your inclination is maybe some market testing, possibly stripped down games. Do you think all the manufacturers would do that? Or do you think that's like Stern might do that and Jersey Jack's going to just go ahead and do their Cadillac version game and and hope for the best or what? I, I think it comes down to how long we're, we're in this. So the shorter that this 
that this, uh, you know, physical uh, social distancing is the tighter that that is, the more back to normal the day it was in January we will be. So if this if this rides out and rides out and rides out and nobody's going back to factories to work and nobody's buying anything and we're all still locked in our homes, that is the largest determining factor, I would say, as to what will inevitably happen. Do you not think the stir craziness of being stuck within quarantine will will drive people to desperately buy up what few new inbox games remain with distributors? I think that that is I think that is a possibility, but I would say that it's I would say that it's smaller in my opinion. I don't see for example, I'm in the market to buy a new pin. I'm not sure what I'm going <gasps> to do. Oh, I know. I know. Hot Wheels? I, oh man, I love things that go around in a circle aimlessly for no apparent reason. So I am all in on that one. But when I sit back and I say, okay, I'm in the market to buy a pin. Am I going to buy a new in box? Am I going to buy a couple of used ones? Am I going to buy some, you know, old Gottliebs and have 12 of them for the same price? It really comes down to when am I emotionally comfortable to take that risk? And the longer that this goes, I would say the harder it is to people to take that risk. There are people out there at this moment who are like, you know what? I would buy a Stranger Things Pro or a premium right now. I just got to get it shipped to my house. And I'll set it up and have a good time for a little while. But there are fewer people willing to take that risk today than there were 30 days ago. That's a good point. That would be where I would see it going. Now, if we get 30 days from today... 60 days from today, 90 days from today, that a willingness to take that risk to spend, you know, in the United States, something like $7,000 American, that window gets smaller and smaller and smaller as to how many people are willing to take that plunge. So I mentioned before, if we're on this curve and it's going down into the trough into the bottom, the deeper that that trough gets, and in this case, the longer that the health crisis lasts, the harder it is to sort of take a risk. So if you're, if you're like, I'm going to throw down my seven grand right now. Well, what if I need that $7,000? What if I lose my job? You know, a stranger things in my house is not going to help me if I can't buy groceries. Now, 30 days from now, that's less of a possibility than it would be 60 or 90 days down the road because we don't know what's going to happen. And that's what's giving us the stress and the anxiety is there are so many unknowns that we don't know where it's going. So let's pivot this slightly then uh, because I, I was asking pretty specifically regarding new pins, but you did bring up the idea on used and your your horrible jab about the 12 Gottliebs, which under today's, well, I guess pre-COVID today's market would have only been 11 because even they have gone up in value, <laughs> uh, would be, are there changes on the used market side? And I know that's a lot more speculative because the price range on used goes all the way from EM projects of unpopular manufacturers all the way up to barely out of box new games that are essentially sold after three months of play. So what what do you think on that? Same all the same factors into play? Is it different because the prices are lower? That your your groceries aren't nearly as much of a question at two thousand dollars as they were at seven thousand? Yeah, well, it comes down to to a couple of, of bits, but but I really want to focus in on credit or leverage. Some people call it right, and that would be a credit card, a line of credit. 
Oh, I thought you were talking about the, what was that movie with John Travolta and they talk about all the leverage that you need, the Battlefield Earth. Oh, I didn't see Oh, this. human, you must get your leverage. You have a bad taste in movies. Oh, come on. No one likes that movie. But I got to tell you, I've never seen so many Dutch angles in my life. Brutal. Brutal. The The majority of, I would say, the North American economy in general has been built on leverage. It's been built on borrowed money. Interest rates, because of the 2008 financial crisis, have been so low and had started to climb late last year. Have, or late in 2018 and then down again in 19 and now basically zero. What that does is it, it incentivizes us to borrow money to spend, which stimulates the economy. That's kind of the idea behind it. I would assume and I would strongly assume that the majority of pinball machines that are purchased are not purchased in cash. They are purchased in some sort of credit, be it a credit card or a line of credit. Because interest rates are low on a line of credit, right? I can borrow at 5% or 3% as opposed to, you know, years but, ago. But people on Penn side say never buy games on credit. Ah, yes. But see, here's the thing. People will say, oh, it's cash on the glass, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, no. I, sh I show up. I, I You know, I'm going to go buy a... Tron. Tron. The greatest game probably ever created. It's trending down, but it's, go on. It is phenomenal. So let's say I'm going to go buy a Tron. I'm going to take the cash... I'm going to put it on the glass, and I'm going to put that in my car and go home, right? That's what everybody says. Yep. Well, you know, I also have uh, $5,000 on my home line of credit. Well, you know, okay, I didn't. I used cash from my paycheck to buy that pin, right? Well, yeah, it's I mean, cash. Yeah, it's a, sh it's a shell game, right? <laughs> like, I could have taken that cash, and I could have put it on my line of credit and been completely debt-free, but I chose instead to buy a pinball machine. Oh, okay. So you've indirectly still used credit. Exactly. So you've you've gone around in a circle. So now, everyone with a home it. mortgage right now is indirectly buying their pinball machines on credit. It, I would say if you if you if outside of a mortgage, I would say like if we're getting like into consumer debt, let's put it that way. Okay. So if they've got a balance on their credit card, they're buying on credit. Exactly. Or okay. or even a, even a, a home line of credit. I'm just trying to understand the David rules. So. Yeah. So. I could go out at this moment, and probably most people could, even without a job, and use their credit card and buy a pin. Well, that's not financially smart, right? But, but is it financially stupid? <laughs> it's, I probably would – I would strongly suggest um, uh, having almost no debt as possible, but that's a story for another time. Most people are buying these with some sort of leverage. I guarantee it. Now – the same thing works in other industries, right? Uh, you know, how many people have motorcycles or snowmobiles or nicer cars than they probably should? <laughs> yeah, I love how you say snowmobiles. That's such a Canadian thing to practice. Exactly. I mean, how many people do you know that have gone out there and bought at least 12 or 13 liters of maple syrup to have in their house just to have? They buy have that no stuff on credit. Of, uh, of what a liter represents. Is that approximately the amount that fits on a spoon? It would it would be at least twelve spoons, maybe a lot. Okay, yeah. So that's that's the thing, right? So personally, the way my finances work in my family is that my wife and I have very strong communication as to what comes in and what comes out of our household balance sheet, and I have what I've called a pinball embargo. Okay, which means that I bought. Uh, an expensive pinball machine that was home use only. It's a gorgeous machine. 
Waterworld? It, it was it was not. It was Hook. And <laughs> and oh, oh, that's God. like the fourth best pirate game. I, I just I love Robin Williams so much. Rufio. So, Rufio. So when I when I bought my Tron, I, you know, I paid a lot for that. Because it was it was very much a collector pin. And that meant that I could not spend any money for like 14 months on pinball, right? Like I couldn't buy pinballs, nothing. That was the, that was the rule that I had agreed on. If I'm going to spend money on this stupid toy, I'm embargoed for at least 12 months. Well, the money that I was going to spend on my next pin, I've put into a savings account. In Canada, we call them a tax-free savings account, which is somewhat like a registered retirement plan in Canada, or I think you call them 401ks in the U.S. It's it's a registered investment account. Well, I've put my my extra money in there in the anticipation or the expectation that I would spend that money when my embargo was up. My embargo ended yesterday. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> this might be the time to strike. <laughs> Except if this functions akin to the US 401k model, then your investment is stock based. It was it was uh, approximately 80% stock, 20% bonds, which is growth oriented. Oh, okay. Uh it's in a mutual fund in Canada, which I you have those in the states as well. Yeah, that's what most of my retirement funds are yeah, in. Very well diversified, let's put it that way. It's very world neutral. It's it's weathered well. But I have less money than I had when I put it in. Right. This is so, not the time to take money out. Right. And right. Yeah, never, never take it out when it's down. You got to ride those things out. That's what right. I was always told. So those are those are the two things. One is the access to credit. The other one is the savings that you've had. And at the moment, somebody like me, I'm sitting back and saying, ah, you know what? I don't want to sell my savings and I don't want to put it on a credit card because I might need my home line of credit or my credit card in the, in the future. Um, I'm not sure how my business revenues look. I'm, you know, maybe I'll wait a month when the curve starts to flatten and we're out on the other side and see how it looks. Right. And that goes for new inbox sales and that goes for used sales. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, they, I mean, technically they function the same way in this concept. In Canada, what kills us the most is is U.S. currency. Pinballs are bought and sold in U.S. currency. We use Canadian dollars or uh, dollary dues in Australia. And what we generally do is we will look on a pin side and say, "Oh, this is what uh, this is what Buck Rogers is going for now a thousand dollars U.S." Well, because of the stimulus that your Federal Reserve is doing, and let's say the price of oil dropping, et cetera, et cetera. The American dollar has appreciated. So the American dollar has gone up. And that has then depreciated the loonie and the dollary do. So when you look on Pinside, you've probably noticed, as well as everybody listening to this, this podcast, and if you look on Craigslist in the US or in Canada, we use a, a, what's called Kijiji, and you're looking at all these pins being put up online. They're all going up online. Now, there's been a small price correction in the US, right? Prices are a little bit low, but there's a lot of them on the market. Generally, still the same as they were priced about a month ago. Yeah, I've not. I mean, in terms of my own tracking, I've mostly been following the project discussions, so pinball machines that are on the lower end. And there there has been a notable, I feel, increase in the number of quote-unquote project deals that are in play. Uh, 
And I think part of that is, in a way, you'd almost be surprised because it's like a lot of people are stuck at home. What else do they have to do but work on such projects? But uh, I think the challenge is part of the the reason why that's a glut is this this financial pressure that you've been discussing, and also the fact that a lot of people that would normally buy these projects are declaring that they have not gone and obtained some of them because they are under a stay-at-home order and they are trying to comply with it. Yeah, I actually saw an ad, uh, I think it was yesterday, where the person literally said, if you want to buy the pin, I'll put it in my garage. I'll wipe it down with Lysol wipes. You just send me an an e-transfer and you just kind of come and pick it up. We don't even have to see each other, which is... Which is really weird. <laughs> really, yeah. Like, like just, face it, right? It's going to be like a creepy, like, saw axe murderer shed, probably. Yeah, that's totally Tony style right there. I, poor Tony. Yeah, the, the biggest issue, I would say, with the pricing in USD is, you know, the prices here in Canada have remained the same at the moment. Uh, in the US, they've remained the same, but let's say there's the volume of, of offers are higher. And, and I don't want to depress anybody, but it's the length of this COVID crisis as the pressure builds on individuals, you know, without a job or, oh, I don't need these five pins. I can just sell one and it would be nice to have an extra 5000 or $2,000 laying around. If that pressure begins, that's when sale prices will, continue, will drop. Um, when nope. the have to sell people are like, you know what, my my pin's been up there for a month and it hasn't moved yet, and I need twelve hundred bucks. Now, what do you say to those that look back and say, yeah, uh, that makes sense, but if we think back to two thousand and eight, and you look at the average pricing that was tracked on Pinside and such back then, or the eBay pricing from the the old graphs, it's like there was a dip, but it wasn't very long and it wasn't very much. And so why would it be any different? I think the difference between sort of, let's say, a, a regular recession versus a, a 2008 scenario and, and specifically now is, is the length of that. The longer something plays out, sort of the more pressure builds. So 2008, really in the fall, is kind of when more or less everything started to get towards the bottom, if you will. 2009 is the bottom in about March. And then the economy starts to sort of rocket fire in 2009, 10, 11. So 12 months is not a very long period of time. But the economic sort of um, buffer around that, the sort of the, the peak in the valley, when that spreads and it goes out longer and uncertainty lasts longer and impacts last longer, that's, I think, when things change. I th- yeah, those are some good points. I I personally also think that there are some other distinctions in terms of how the pinball market as a microcosm operates now versus what it was like in 2008. And by that what I mean is in 2008 it was not a growing hobby. The number of people that were participating was at a a, a level and it was a level lower than we currently have. And you only had one manufacturer at that point putting out a fairly modest amount of new games into that marketplace that wasn't really a growing marketplace. Since 2012, pinball's popularity has gone up a lot. There, You could argue there has been a glut in new-in-box games available because there are so many manufacturers outputting so much product. And because of that, I think 
when you have a downturn like this, regardless of what it was caused by, be a natural recession or this sort of forced governmental social distancing thing that could put a lot of pressure that would not normally exist in a recession, in both scenarios, you've got a situation where there are people that I might call tangentially interested in the hobby that may put off wanting to do more in the hobby because other financial concerns exist now. And those that still want to stay involved with the hobby have a lot larger pool of used games available to choose from than they did back in 2008. And so given that just doesn't matter if it's new or used or new out, new out of box, essentially, that all that choice means things are going to sit more than we saw in 2008 anyway. And if things sit, the price has to fall. The money's got to go into people's pockets. And a lot of people I know will argue, well, if I can't get X amount, I'm not going to sell. Not everyone can stay in that position forever. Eventually that eventually that nice to have $4,000 in your pocket becomes the, well, I need 3000 in my pocket now. Yeah, there's there markets and all markets are are exactly the same. And they all work on emotion. And if you think of fear of the future, risk and optimism as sort of some of those those levers uh to gauge that emotion, you know, at the moment there is and a massive amount of fear in the market as well as just in general. People are fearful and they're waiting, right? We don't know what it looks like. And we're on the upswing when it comes to the United States at the moment of, of this crisis and fear will continue to build. What does that future look like? Well, we don't ever know. And there are too many scenarios that we're trying to break down to figure that out. Well, then you, then you have to measure the risk. And I had mentioned that previous is, I got my tax return and I got a $2,000 tax return. And it's like, what do I do with that? Do I, do I put it on my line of credit? Do I sit on it at the moment? Or do I buy a pinball machine? And you have to gauge that level of risk. Where is my risk? Am I going to be able to still go to the grocery store? Am I still going to have my job? Am I still going to do those? You got to measure that. Eventually that turns into optimism, sort of when the, when, not just not the financial market, but markets in general bottom out, then there's this sort of, okay, when does the optimism start again? And then we're already on the way up on that, um, on that roller coaster again. So somebody out there, you know, has five pins and they can sell one. If I don't get $2,000 for my pin, I'm not going to sell it. Well, that's perfectly fine. Then, then you're not, in the fear of the future, you're not fearful of what's going to happen. You have some sort of vision. Well, you know, 60 or 90 days down the road, it might be, you know what? I need to get $3,500 or I need to get $1,500 like need it. And the only place that I can get that is this box of, of light bulbs in my basement that my, you know, my spouse is bothering me about. So that's what I'm going to have to do. And I'm going to put it on pin side for 1500 bucks because that's what I need. And that comes from fear, risk, and, and optimism, right? So I have to take the risk to say, you know what, I'm going to spend that $1,500 and buy that pin as opposed to sit on it. Right. So that's what's going to drive the up and down of the market. Not necessarily the, oh, there's an opportunity to buy a bunch of pins. I'm going to sit here like a vulture. That's not how it works, right? It's... It's based on, on, on emotion. Like a lot of people will say fear and greed, like, uh, that movie with Michael Douglas. What was that? Ant-Man. No. 
Oh, there's, no, you're there's thinking so many the one people, where he's Gordon Gecko. Yeah, there's so many people yelling at me right now. I'm a financial person and I can't remember. No, that, no one's yelling. No. Wasn't it Wall Street? Oh, that's it. How can, how can I not get that? Wall Street. It has the name of the financial district of the United States in it. One might say the New York of New York. No, some would say the Toronto of the United States. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, well, let's take that fear. Let's take that fear and let's move into our next category of examination, and that is tournaments. Now, do you play in tournaments? I I play in tournaments, but I am not a tournament player. Okay, so you're you're kind of like me. So we yeah, understand. I, I'm used I want to play a with, bunch of different with, pinball machines with Mr. The Ken only Cromwell and Mr. Access. Zach Minnie, and they just don't even pretend to play no. in tournaments. I love the social interaction. I love being able to play. I love I love playing machines that I've never played before. So I get all that stuff usually. Mm. But I'm I'm not particularly good. Well, needless to say, the uh, impact of COVID nineteen is felt even on the tournament scene. There initially, when things were coming into play in the U.S. at first, uh, unsurprisingly to me, there was a lot of resistance. I felt uh, nationally, locally, <laughs> regionally, to not conducting tournaments. People still, especially if they were already on the books, and so there was a lot of pressure for that. The International Flipper Pinball Association, or IFPA, or some people call it IFPA, they suspended sanctioning of all tournaments. They they did it for a period of time through March, but they have since done it until further notice, and they're just going to play it by ear. Now, just as an aside, I do think that this was the right decision for them because we were seeing instances where places were going to still try and a lot of tournaments happen in private homes. So you could have avoided the whole situation with location play and such in a case-by-case basis, maybe not properly observing social distancing rules. But setting that aside, there were people that wanted to be opportunistic and still continue to accumulate uh, whopper points or the the official scoring metric that the IFPA uses to on any of their uh, sanctioned tournaments to evaluate player performance and still work and accumulate those while vast sections of the world were unable to do so. So they've put the stop to that, which which I think is good. Uh, do you have thoughts on the IFPA's decision? Do you disagree with me? No, I, I, this is this is something that has to be done. I mean, if they're not having NBA games, if they're not having, you know, us playing pinball in private homes. Yeah, you hear that, pinballers? There ain't no b-ball. There ain't no pinball. That's right. So it's like we had a scheduled uh, uh, IFPA-sanctioned event, which was happening at one town over, and it was going to happen. It wasn't going to happen. It was going to happen. And eventually it just didn't. And that was before the, the suspension of sanctioned events. And it, it came down to all of us being like, you know, do I want to show up and wear gloves and have Purell and like, you know, let's just see how it goes. And I think this is proven here in the last, let's say, week, if not two weeks, where, wow, that was a really good decision not to host those. Um, we had the North American uh, championships that happened in Denver this year. And that's kind of right before everybody started to really, really take it seriously. And, you know, you don't want to have that shadow all the time of of this this feeling of i might be sick i might be ill i might you know let's just not deal with it on an international basis let's just put a halt we keep our points kind of as they are and again when when the health crisis ends we can reevaluate and say okay where does this start again yeah i think hitting the pause doesn't I, it this 
because it's not, I mean, the IFPA isn't reliant on the dollar fees for its own survival or anything. This, in terms of being able to exist and then unpause at some stage, is pretty low bar to clear. The Though, interestingly about, you mentioned the North American Pinball Championships, I believe associated with that, they also conducted a Pin Masters event. I had heard from attendees that they were notified that someone tested positive for COVID-19 after that event. And so some of them had to monitor themselves for symptoms that came back to Kansas City from that event because of that. And that was right at the start where we were, where we still weren't sure it was going to be a big deal. I mean, even me, with me working with public health groups all the time, we still at the local level didn't really fathom just how big of a deal. Part of it was we didn't understand the virus very well. And part of it was there was so little testing going on. We had no idea what level of a foothold it actually had in this, in this uh, continent. Quite frankly, I want you to get out your crystal ball, though, because, you know, financial advisors have those. And I want you to to clear the clouds away from it. A lot of people I've never gone, but I hear that Pinberg is the bee's knees. What I do know about it, knees or no knees, is that it's currently scheduled to happen July 9th through the 12th. Do you think Pinberg happens this year? No, I, I don't think Pinberg happens. And, and I think some of that comes Let's assume that, okay, everything's all fine by June, right? Everything's great by June 1st, just as, as a magic of a miracle. It's, it's the logistics and the infrastructure around Pinburg that I think is the real issue. You know, the, that, that Papa team, you know, you see them all the time on, I used to see them all the time on Monday streams on Twitch and they're playtesting all of those games. You know, they've got the Minberg Championships where it's a mini Pinberg where they're, where they're testing all of the, the, the streaming equipment. They're testing the machines. They're setting them all up. None of that is happening. And, and we're talking thousands of machines, right? So that's not just something you do in a month. Do you not think that they'd forgo the testing though, just to make sure that the event still happened if they were in the clear? I don't. I don't know if they would want to. I don't know if they'd want to do that. Well, I know they wouldn't want to, but I'm. I'm saying, will they? No, I, I certainly not. the The last thing that you want to do is have uh, a bunch of pinball tournament nerds all flustered and angry because the outlanes are are in on this game or you know the bonus multiplier is not working on this em like that's just a train wreck waiting to happen with that many machines and that many people it pains me to say that pinberg won't happen because i love watching online it i don't i don't see it happening and it's it's logistics it's not the event itself i'm less sure than you are about it not happening i think that if the event is in the if the dates are in the clear as long as i know well enough in advance that they're able to, you know, commit to gain that because there's a time period that it takes to just bring the games and stuff. I do think that they would forgo the testing and that they will hope that the people who attend will be they'll accept a mea culpa on and understand that there just was no time to properly test, that it won't be the Pinberg of a caliber that they're used to, but it's still the greatest tournament on earth and that people will live with it. I'm wondering, though, with social distancing requirements, and even if there's a loosening after May of being able to go back to work and stuff, there may still be prohibitions on mass gatherings. And travel as well, right? We are we currently are crossing the border into the U.S. We say mass gathering, and people think like uh, 
Lollapalooza and stuff, mass gatherings, just any sort of grouping uh, or outside, inside, doesn't matter. An airplane is a mass gathering. So, and even if they loosen the threshold from 10 up to 50, obviously that's still too many for Pinberg. When we were first finding out and shutting things down, like when TPF was was ended, I have an event for my work. We do a we do a conference every year. Starts on June fifteenth, and even then, when I knew TPF was out, I was like, someone asked me, "Are we? Am I hosting my work conference?" And I'm like, "It's in the middle of June. I'm assuming we are. I'm still planning it." Now, as things have spread more and more. I'm in this annoying position where I'm like, I'd rather, I just need to know. I'd rather know that I'm not going to do it in June so I can quit wasting my time planning it or know that it's definitely going to happen. And I'm in the added boat that it's a conference for local health officials. And even if I can meet, they might not come just because they're busy. The difference, of course, is if I get a governmental declaration, I can get out of the penalties of breaking contract. Well, two weeks before Pinburg, I think it's two weeks, is, is Pintastic in New England. And I had planned to go to that. It was going to be my first, um, actual event, uh, of, of that kind of convention style thing, uh, as well as I was going to play in the Silver Ball Rumble. And that's, you know, I've got my hotel room booked. Uh, I haven't bought tickets yet. It's sort of been, you know, radio silence for the most part as to, okay, you know, it's almost July by the end of that time, right? We're, we're still just at the beginning of April. And again, it's cloudy. Nobody knows, you know, if, is that going to happen? I don't know, maybe, right? And that's just a week or two before, um, Pinburg. And it's not this massive, like massive event as Replay FX is. Like, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I thought I'd touch on on the tournaments in terms of was just what what do we think the future looks like for competitive, uh, the future of the rest of 2020, uh, ter- tournaments moving forward. I think tournaments, by and large, do recover. I think the interest in playing pinball doesn't go away just because we've been cooped up. In fact, it will probably expand. I think if Josh Sharp, president of the IFPA, was wondering if and when he would finally see a year with less tournaments than the previous year, he'll finally get that because... I don't think there's any way we quote unquote catch up and just flood ourselves with a whole bunch of, of tournaments making up for the fact that we didn't get to play any since middle of March. Yeah. I mean, Keith Alwyn is still going to finish number one. Let's just point. It doesn't matter if there's one tournament. Well, or he only plays in the big stuff now. You know, he's, he's semi-retired. He's too busy coming up with pinball designs that win all the Twippy awards. But the, the other thing though, is getting back to the operation, the impact on the barcades and stuff. In some locations, the options available for tournaments might be depleted and so even further suppress that number. I think you'll still end up seeing robust tournament numbers nationwide, worldwide, but ultimately they'll be down for 2020 versus 2019 for sure. Will 2021 be as high as 2019? I think that's an enigma because I think that's going to come down to the number of locations. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my final deep dive section was one you sort of touched on with your 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 rumblings and your silver ball, and that's on pinball shows. So we already know that a number of events have canceled. Texas Pinball Festival, uh, Midwest Gaming Classic, uh, the New York City Pinball Championships went ahead and canceled. Uh, there are a few other events that have already indicated that they've pushed themselves back 
uh, that were, you know, those that were able to do it successfully. It can be very hard to push back anything that's large, large and logistic. Even my conference I was mentioning for work, which would probably field between 50 and 100 public health professionals, I wouldn't reschedule it. It's too much work. It's too hard to work it into a calendar. Uh, it's too hard to find a new location. I'd probably just give up and do it again in 2021 instead. What I'm curious about is we saw, especially like when TPF canceled, and there was an effort for a GoFundMe. Uh, the last I saw it, it, it was just under $10,000 raised. This obviously was before a lot of stay-at-home orders where there were a lot of entities associated with pinball hurting for money. But clearly the desire was there to try and show support for the show. What I'm wondering is, what do you think the show scene looks like for the rest of 2020? When do we get back to normal? Is Expo? Is that like the soonest we can expect that we're going to have a show that was <laughs> as planned and happen? Because you seem skeptical on Pinberg. Realistically, I would say... The way it looks now, if, if we are on the upswing in the United States here on, on COVID-19, the downswing has started. You know, we've flattened that curve in North America. You know, things are a little more calm and we're able to go out. I mean, the first step is really opening up daycares and schools. And then sort of the next step then would be sort of the more larger gatherings. I think we're going to end up following a model of, I don't think pinball will be the first thing out of the gate to be like, you know, September rolls around, October rolls around, and, you know, oh, look, the pinball guys are all out at their uh, events. We'll end up following major sports. If major sports end up opening up, we whatever opens up around that would happen. And at this time, sort of an optimist's view going forward, I think the fall is, is, is very possible. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see anything happening this summer. I think we're all barbecuing this summer and yelling at our neighbors from our decks. Even though we may not have to, I think we just will be just to keep make sure that we can keep that curve flat. Because if we all just kind of rush out to a pinball show, that, you know, it's it's going to come up again, and then we'll be into the same friggin' thing again in the fall, and it won't be until December. Policy-wise, you're yes, I agree. But there are a lot of people, uh, including a lot of pinball people, that don't believe in any of this, that they think we're wasting our time with this control, these control measures, that it's not serious, and they don't care. They have been put off from doing what they want to do. So I, I guess I guess we all just want to sacrifice our grandparents at the altar of uh, Dow Jones and pinball events. Well, I think that there are a lot of people that are uh, just really, really callous or just don't like being inconvenienced. Uh, never be surprised at the sociopathy of the average human being. That's what I always say, except I've never said it before. But I've I said it now. I think that's uh, I think that's your, your on your family motto. Yes, on our crest. Yes. I think that pinball in the summer, that that's going to hinge entirely on replay effects. If replay effects cannot happen, which is where Pinberg is, the summer is essentially sacrificed for pinball. I'm almost certain that Pinball Expo will be massive and well attended. I think all controls of note will be lifted by that stage. <laughs> yep. I think that yeah, either you flattened the curve successfully enough at that point that you're no longer worried about the hospital surge or you failed and you're past that point anyway because so many people got infected. So either way, I guess it's over. And this moment of happiness brought to you by Dennis Creasel. Yeah, well, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, do you think that we, looking at 2021, are there any shows that were planned for 2020 that do not come back for 2021? Do we lose anything? I have not a clue. I I would like to say 
that they'll all come back and it'll be just as it was. I, I think there will be a few casualties, but I don't think, I don't think the big tent pole brand name events that we all talk about and hear about, the TPFs, MGCs, Henbergs, those things, they will still be around, but those smaller, more regional events that only people in that region may know. But, you know, pinball is usually only one part of all of these events. Usually these events also have some sort of board game, uh, video game component, uh, anime conventions, pop culture, that kind of stuff. There's more going on that is just this one piece. If one of those other pieces ends up not surviving, then it would impact pinball. Yeah, I overall, I think that most, uh, most or maybe even all of the notable shows, and they even the smaller ones, will, will be able to survive this. The ones that were going to be in the biggest bind were actually those shows like MGC and Texas. And that's not uh, the government... The government mandates get them out of some, I'm assuming, based off of any contracts I've ever signed for hotel facilities or reviewed, uh, will get you out a lot of those potential penalties. But there was the cost of having, say, produced shirts that they plan to sell and things like that. Those that were a little bit further out might not have yet ordered all of that stuff. So they did not incur those same costs, those sunk costs that they already bought, that they can't just say, well, we had COVID, uh, give me a refund on all my shirts sort of thing. So- a lot of those, those that were further away from the early March shows, they bought them. So they had more time. So they had the ability to incur less costs and start planning for the fact that they might not happen, kind of like what I'm doing with my conference. And then on top of that, it's also always possible to just scale back the 2021 show. Maybe you don't fly in five special guests. Absolutely. Yep. You're spot on. And instead you, you don't have any or you bring one. And so there are some things that they can do in the future to help sort of up their profit margin and reduce their expense side and help you know, flatten that fiscal curve, if you will, uh, moving forward, if they're looking at this with a long tail. So those are the main, those are all the examinations that I wanted to deep dive on. So we, really just in terms of final thoughts. So you, you're a financial analyst. You're an expert in all things money. Tie it together for us. What happens to pinball after all of this? Does it go away? Should I start a new hobby? Should I go back more into video games again? Well, if 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 you're like me and and you love the social aspect of pinball, you 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 love the analog nature of it. It's still going to be there. I mean, it, we're not in the nineties. They're not arcades everywhere. There's still hobbyists that have them. If if you're Smart with your money, and smart I mean not spending money you don't have, you have good cash flow, you have good credit, you have a good net worth, which means that you own more stuff that appreciates or goes up in value than you compare to loans and liabilities that go down in value. You know, as long as you kind of have those three things, the industry will continue to survive and we'll get through this. It's this happens. The method that's happening here, the health crisis component and the fear around that is the major driver. And it is horrible. You know, I would not want to be in Manhattan at the moment and, and God bless those people that are, that are in those major American urban centers. This is going to be a tough go. But one thing that I know is we've been through horrible things as, as a species and we'll be able to get through it again. And, and it, it will come. I don't know when, I don't know how long it will be, but, but we'll get through it. 
Yeah, I I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I I would say overall that this will ultimately result in some level of a contraction in the pinball hobby. I don't know how severe because as we've been saying throughout this entire episode, that's going to depend entirely on how long these controls are in place. It will have a negative influence. It already has had a negative influence on aspects of the hobby, but as long as people remain interested in pinball, and there's no reason to think that COVID-19 took that interest away, there will be the ability for the hobby to recover from that, just like it recovered from the downturn and the closure of Valley Williams in 99 and the recession period of 2008, where people thought Stern Pinball was going to shut its doors. We've been in a resurgence now. I don't think we're going to dip back to the 2000 to 2010 period. I don't think it's going to be that severe, but I do, I do expect there to be some level of contraction. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all of these businesses now, they're private companies. They're owned by private individuals, private companies. You know, billionaires have a lot of money and having a lot of money. How much? Billions? Billions, perhaps. The perhaps tens of billions. The The problem with having a lot of money is it causes a lot of problems. And I'm not talking about just like emotional problems that that might come up or affluenza. You know, you need to find ways to spend that money, but you don't want to just blow it on depreciating assets like cars, right? You want to invest in businesses. That's probably why a lot of these billionaires have these pinball companies because their money is generating money and that money creates a, a tax liability. So they have to spend it somewhere and they use accounting shenanigans. They, they use professionals to manage their money, to find ways to buy businesses or buildings, to create write-offs. You've got capital losses. Their money creates money and they need to find a way to do that. And, you know, if that means that for a year or, you know, a year and a half, they have to, you know, take it on the chin, sort of like a deep root has for the last little while with not generating any revenue, but they can still sort of keep afloat for the most part because their money's still there for the, you know, not all of their money is in Delta Airlines, right? Like billionaires have a lot of money. That, that was an awful lot of words to say billionaires have a lot of money. Why don't they fill swimming pools like Scrooge McDuck and swim in it? Yeah, well, first of all, he used coins. And then he's he's not. And at this point, you don't want to be touching money at all. Mm, That's true. Well, I guess now he can he can swim he can swim around in the little uh, phone apps. Yeah, so we have plastic money in Canada. You guys still have the paper money. Mm -hmm. So so we can literally spray our money with Lysol. And all is well. Well, I maybe we can spray ours. I don't know what happens to it if we do. I've never tried it. Well, there's your homework, folks, all the listeners out there. Yeah. You can email Dennis with your findings. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Speaking of which, yes, if you want to reach reach out to me, it's best to probably do so through my non-TPN podcast, uh, collectorgamerspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, David, how can they reach you? Yeah, everybody can reach me. It's probably best to go through uh, Silverball Chronicles Gmail account, which is silverballchronicles at gmail.com. The and hit show. And the, your next episode is on Gottlieb. Yes, Gottlieb System 3. We're going to call it the uh, Death of Gottlieb, the System 3 era. We've we've done sort of our first two episodes of kind of an early solid state, so I wanted to kind of change it up and get something maybe a little more sort of modern-esque 
it's uh, it's going to be a good one, I think. It, Ron has really, really added a lot to to the podcast because you don't notice, but through a lot of editing, I remove out a lot of the stuff where he corrects me because I totally just made something up and it's really well. <laughs> well, well, Ron is a long-term expert hobbyist uh, in a variety of fronts from repair to game knowledge to history. So, And now pinball karaoke on his Twitch stream. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, that's it for this uh, COVID-19 deep dive on the Pinball Show Midweek Edition. So on behalf of David Dennis, I'm Dennis Creasel. You all uh, wash your hands and play pinball if you've got any near you that can be socially distanced and safe. Yeah, and stay the f*** home. See ya.